we knew we needed capital because it's a capital intensive business and we need to build the hardware. We had to hire a team to develop it first, which it's a lot of investment in R&D. Then we had to prototype it. Then we have to, to build it. So what we decided is we're going to raise as much money as possible early on to get ourselves started. But also we need to put the product out there through crowdfunding. That was really beneficial because you not only test if the market is actually interested in your product, but also the, from a cash flow perspective of getting that money in and being able to then deployed to build what people pre-ordered. One of the biggest challenges of launching a company is transitioning from the security and support of a corporate job into the unknown and how your former corporate allies may question every move you make. For Alexandra Zatarain, co-founder of Ape Sleep, the world's first sleep fitness company, she had both the trust in and of her co-founders and the knowledge that they were onto something important that's universal to everyone on the planet, the need to fall and stay asleep. Alexandra and her team have now raised millions of dollars. They were selected to participate in the prolific accelerator program like StartX and Y Combinator and have been shipping product nonstop since they completed their fundraising seed round. Coming up, You'll hear about the challenges Latino and women founders go through, why Indiegogo was such an important tell for cash flow and testing interest, how Eight Sleep uses science and leverages knowledge through its mattress, and why it's important to just keep swimming. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters. No limits. And plenty of surprises. Alex, I am ready to talk about sleep. I'm always ready to talk about sleep, too. So um, let's go. That was our first uh, quick chit chat when you first walked in here. You said the past couple of days you weren't sleeping as much as you typically do. And I said, how many hours of sleep do you typically get? <laughs> eight to nine eight every to nine night. Hours. Yeah. And how do you can you possibly get eight to nine hours of sleep in this busy city? I know, right? And in the busy life, I'd say that it's about prioritizing sleep. Obviously, I've spent the last six years of my life working in the sleep space. So I've become super ingrained into why it's important. And I've also found kind of my own formula. And I know that if I don't get those hours of sleep, I'm just going to feel terrible, which is what I was mentioning <laughs> when I walked in here is that the first few days of the week, I slept five to six and a half hours. And now I'm really feeling it. Is it possible to catch up on sleep? Is that a thing? I know everyone says we can catch up on sleep, yeah. but is that true? It's not. Unfortunately, it's not. There's this concept of sleep dead, which is really interesting. And so you actually accumulate sleep dead. And technically, every like three days, it resets. So if you don't catch up on that sleep within three days, you ba basically it's gone. So if you were sleep deprived Monday and Tuesday, you cannot really make up for it on Saturday or Sunday, which is what most people think about doing. The other thing is that sleep dead is probably even more interest occurring than regular like a credit card debt because it actually is not like a one-to-one -one ratio of how you make up for it within that three-day period. 
it's it's something around like for every hour you miss on Monday, you need to sleep like two hours more on Tuesday. So it's insane. Like it really is bad for you. So you just stick to your routine every single day is where you're going to get the most out of your sleep because you're not accruing sleep dead and you're actually letting your body recover from the strain that it went through that specific day. So I feel like now we need to rewind because I want to understand how did you get into the business of sleep? What was your background and how did you start this company? So I'm not the only founder. We're a few co-founders. And Mateo, who's my co-founder, our CEO, and my husband as well, he is the person that really started it all out of his own personal struggles with sleep. So this was maybe eight years ago that he started struggling, particularly with restless legs. So he has restless leg syndrome, tends to show up in the middle of the night. So then he wakes up. He started looking into the sleep space, tracking his sleep with apps. At the time, there were certain wearables like Fitbit, Jawbone. There were a few things in the market, but no one was building products designed to track sleep in a way that was seamless. You don't have to wear anything. You don't have to charge anything. And so that's how it all started. It was just he wanted to understand what was happening with his own sleep. And as he went into that rabbit hole of understanding the science, talking to a few friends who were athletes um, to see what they were doing to improve their sleep and their recovery, he realized that there was actually an opportunity for technology to help us sleep better and that it, it could go beyond just giving us numbers and we could use data to inform, to coach, but then also to, in real time, create the perfect environment for sleep. And now, all these many years later, that's exactly what we still do at Eight Sleep is we're using technology to help people sleep better. And we do it through the information that the the mattress, it's our, our signature product, is gathering from you. You don't have to wear anything. It's just all there happening every single night. And then to also keep you at the perfect temperature all through the night, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what seasons, no matter the weather in your home and out, outside in your local area, uh, you're going to be comfortable. And so that's kind of the vision of the company. And we will continue to build products that are delivering on that promise. What were the early days like in the company? It was just the three of you when you started? Yeah. So we're four co-founders. Oh, four, um, I'm sorry. It was four. four of us. And we did our first hire in San Francisco. So we actually moved. Mateo and I were living here in New York. Our other two co-founders were in San Francisco. We moved there. We thought we were going to stay in the Bay Area. We're building a hardware company. We need to do the Silicon Valley thing. So we were. We actually ended up being there for about a year. We hired a first person um, to oversee the hardware side. None of us had experience in building actual hardware consumer electronics products. Max, who is our, our CTO, one of our co-founders has a lot of experience in data and backend, all the software side, but we needed someone on hardware. So that's where we started. And it was like five of us. And we honestly did not know where the hell we were doing. Had you um, raised money at this point? So no. So at the beginning, what happened is we we all moved there around the summer of 2014. And the reason why we decided to, you know, leave our jobs and and actually make this a thing is because a few months before, Max had built a prototype of sensors that could go on a mattress cover and could track data in real time and make adjustments in your environment. That's how it was like out of this idea that Mateo had when they chatted about it, they knew each other from, from many years before, um, they came up with this prototype, Max being the hacker engineer that he has built it in his own home, and they showed it to a few friends in San Francisco. They hosted a dinner. It was like a pajama party. <laughs> they told them, bring like your PJs if you want. We're going to show you something. And they were really not expecting, they were not asking for money. They were not expecting anything specific, but they showed it, right? Which is, I think, a very important part of like when you're building a product in a business is you want to see the reaction of people and see if you're really onto something. 
And out of that dinner, a friend of theirs who was at the time working at Amazon or like a big tech company in the Valley told them, well, this is very interesting. I'll give you like $25,000, like some you know amount that in angel investing is like mm-hmm. a pretty, pretty good amount. If someone else gives you money, cash my check, if no one else gives you money, you know, it's fine. Forget about it. And so for both Max Did that person and Mateo, write you a check or write a check right then? He gave them a check. <laughs> I think they went to have like a pizza next the next day and like he gave them a check or something like that. So he ended up becoming our first investor. And what was interesting is that for both Mateo and Max, who have been entrepreneurs multiple times before, you know, that was kind of the signal that they needed, right? That was the hook to say, okay, well, let's let's see where, what else is there. And they had both just sold their previous companies a few months before. So it was kind of perfect timing. You know, it just happened. And obviously, I've known the guys for many years, and Mateo and I have been together for like 10 years. So when they started, I started helping them out more on the marketing side, which is my background. And, you know, how do we name the company and how do we design and all of these sites? How do we explain the product? And once they were a little bit more advanced and they felt like they had figured out how this could become a business a few months in, they asked me if I wanted to leave my job and move to San Francisco and join them. And so that's how it happened. It's not like I came up with the idea. It's not like I ever thought I was going to become an entrepreneur. Honestly, I was perfectly fine with my job. I was Where working, working? At a, I was at a fintech company okay. in New York. It was it was a startup. It was 40 people. It was fun. I had always been kind of entrepreneurial in my life. My dad was an entrepreneur. So I saw that in, in my family, but it just happened. And I always say that the reason why I decided to leave my job was that I just really love my co-founders. I trusted them. I was the youngest to join. I was the the only woman. I had the least experience, both in, in just professional working years and in my own field. But I knew that they had my back, that they trusted me in the position of my own experience, and that we were going to help each other. We were going to figure it out. In those early days, so now you're an entrepreneur what did you do to start learning? Did you make other friends who are entrepreneurs? Were you able? To, were you still able to keep the same friends you had? Because I've heard from other entrepreneurs that when they start their business and they leave the corporate world behind, it's hard for their corporate friends to relate to to what they're doing now. It was definitely interesting when I shared the news that I was leaving the place where I was. You know, I think there's a lot of skepticism when you're young. I was, I don't know, I was 24 mm-hmm. at the time. So, you know, you're you're young. There's kind of, you know, remember my boss at the time is like, you know, you, you could still do this later, right? Like, why are you doing it right now? It's not normal for such young people to do this. And I, I still think there were quite condescending comments, to be honest, because I don't think that that is actually true. You can start a company at any age. Absolutely. And so I think it was just more of a corporate environment, even though it was a small company. Most people came from the finance world. And we've been able to stay friends with, with especially the ones that you were more you know connected with, in, in my case. What does change in your life is that it is, I think, harder for people to understand what you go through. Mm -hmm. Unless they have been through it themselves, they don't understand how much work it actually takes. And also the fact that most of the times, for me personally, that work isn't really heavy. I like doing Mm -hmm. it. And so it's very hard, not only with friends from your past or present friends or new friends, but your family as well that has known you all your life. My family knows I, I've always loved studying. I've always loved working, doing projects, doing having hobbies. I've always been that kind of person. But now as an entrepreneur, it's taking it to a new level. You're just kind of connected all the time. Yeah. You're working all the time. 
but I'm fine with that. Yeah. I like it. But when they see it from the outside, it's hard to understand. And yeah. they think it's, you know, something must be wrong. It's heavy. Are you okay? Are you too stressed? And so there's definitely, uh, it's a lonely experience as an entrepreneur. And so to your point of, did I make friends? Of course, that is the best thing you can do. It's just connect with other entrepreneurs, talk to them because everyone is going through the same thing, no matter how small or big the business is. It's the same situation. Yeah, I feel like recording all these episodes of the podcast, I hear a lot of these same things over and over again. And definitely connecting with other entrepreneurs is super helpful because you you don't feel alone. You can we can yeah. all relate to to what we're going through. So that's definitely really great advice. I want to understand with having four co-founders, how do you divide up responsibilities? And do you guys ever disagree? Do you have any advice for having four <laughs> co-founders? <laughs> I get the question. Mostly because I work with my husband, mm -hmm. actually. So yes, of course, you have disagreements. But I do think it's important in the relationship with co-founders that you think about it as a, as a marriage. You are getting into that relationship with the expectation that it will be for the long term. And you need to have the same vision about where you want, what you want the company to be, what you want the company to stand for, what type of culture you want to create, what is the ultimate outcome for this. And you all need to be on the same page about that, just like you would ask the same questions if you were getting married to someone. In our case, we divided the the areas of ownership very early on, and they were all stemming from kind of our own backgrounds. One of our co-founders is no longer active uh, with the companies. It's, it's three of us, but he was for the first couple of years. And it was a very natural alignment of where is everyone coming from? What do we want to take care of? But then also constantly regrouping as founders and saying, are we, are we still the right person to be in charge? of this? How do we help each other grow in our areas? Do we need someone else to step in? Do we need to hire someone? And to be really honest with each other and to help each other and to, you know, it's it's a process where you're growing together. It's not just giving each other responsibilities and expecting that as individuals, we're going to figure it out. Are you all based in New York now? Is the whole we're team all here? here yes. And do the three of you as co-founders, do you meet every day, every week? Like, how do you check in to be sure you're all tracking towards the same goals and on the same page? So I think that we actually found a really good formula for that. But for the first years, it was definitely hard in the sense that we did not have a process for alignment and for setting goals, But which is normal as you're starting mm -hmm. off, you're trying to figure out how you do it and how you work together. But as we started growing, we really found that pace. And so Mateo really takes on the responsibilities for CEO. And he has really found this, this, this process that we like of alignment where we have very clear goals for the year, clear goals for the quarter, for every area of the company. Those are discussed not only with us as founders, is we really are all of us as executives. We have, it's not just us, but we have other executives in the company that oversee other very critical areas of, of the organization. So it's all of us as executives need to be on the same page. And we need once a quarter to look at the, the quarterly goals, talk about strategies, and then every single Monday we meet again. And so those are the touch points that we have. As founders, honestly, what something that's actually very interesting Mateo says is that we shouldn't treat each other in any special way. Mm -hmm. The only difference between us as founders and the other executives is we sit on the board and they don't. But the reality is we need to be treated the same way. With the same level of accountability and responsibility, the same expectations for our own areas. Otherwise, you start creating these kind of two layers and two different groups, right? And the founder shouldn't be precious. 
Like, we're not here because we just started with the company. We need to merit our spot every single day, just like everyone else is in, on the team. How big is your team now? We're like 50. That's amazing. And what has it been like going from just starting out the four of you or five of you to now managing a team of 50 people? It's very challenging. It has definitely been one of the hardest challenges for me as an individual to grow and understand you know, how do you change from maybe being the person that's always very action-oriented and just solving problems and just figuring everything out else on your own versus trying to grow people. You can't do it all when you have a team of 50 people. You can't be the one sitting down and writing the email and designing the email and sending the email, right? You need a team. You need people to grow. You need people to take on responsibilities. But on the other hand, it's also been really fun. It's very rewarding to see when people have been with the company for many years, when they grow, when you start seeing that they get engaged, they get married, they have babies. And we, we've seen that now with, with several of our team members. And it's amazing to see how much we are growing together. Coming up, what Latino and women founders go through, and tips for pitching for investment. So Alex, you mentioned that your dad was an entrepreneur as yeah, well. Yeah. So you grew up in this family of entrepreneurs, but you didn't necessarily think you were going to become an entrepreneur. What was your childhood like growing up, and did it shape the businesswoman you are today? Certainly did. I mean, it shaped the person I am. I grew up in Tijuana, Mexico, so I'm 100% Mexican, grew up on the border. It was a very fun and, I'd say, privileged childhood. You know, family, my dad was an entrepreneur, he had a small business. What did he do? So he had a company that was importing auto parts and distributing them in Mexico. Okay. So he represented a lot of the key auto part brands from international companies, and he was a key distributor in Mexico. So he grew that business himself from nothing to to something. And we were very privileged to have a middle-class life in a country that has very large disparity. And I think that really shaped my opportunities, right? I, I when, when I think about people that come from Mexico, most of the people don't have access to the things I did, thanks to my parents and their hard work and the education that we all got and the ability to learn English from a young age. But also we were still exposed to how everyone else in our country lives. Living in Tijuana was really interesting also to get exposed to the issues of immigration. Mm -hmm. It's a city of immigrants. A lot of people from other parts of Mexico migrate there, just like my dad, that just like my, my mother's family did as well. And a lot of people from other parts of Latin America end up in Tijuana as well in their path to getting hopefully to the United States eventually. And so we used to do a lot of social work when I was growing up, when I was in, in Catholic school and all through high school and middle school, you would go and visit the immigrants and learn their stories and understand what they went through. And so all of these things now living in New York City, a place of such diversity, a place with people of so many backgrounds, people that most of us have migrated to this place. I think it does give me that other level of sensitivity and very natural understanding of what we've all been through to get to where we are. No, that that's so interesting. I always think it just I love hearing stories of how people are raised and how that leads to what they end up doing in their 
you know, personal and professional life. So I think that that's so interesting. I'm sure your family's so proud of everything that you've been able to accomplish and you've had had them as role models. So that's really incredible. Thank you. So I want to hear a little bit about the process of raising money. A lot of the entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast, some of them are just starting out in their journey and they're looking to start a product business and they feel that they might need to raise money. Can you share more about that experience, what it was like, and maybe some lessons learned? Sure. So the we've raised quite a bit of capital. I think we're close to $65 million, And it's been different every single time that we do it. So when we started off, we had that you know friend of Max and Mateo who offered a check and said, you know, get started with this. And early on, most of the money was raised from friends and family, true friends and family, just people that we knew, friends that were maybe a few years ahead in their careers, that had been at tech companies, had made some money. And honestly, most of that money came from friends who were Italians in tech, because my co-founders are all Italian themselves. And what was very interesting to me looking at that pattern is how hard it was early on for us to be backed by anyone who didn't know us. Mm. So I always talk about this from the perspective of what I see other, particularly women and Latino founders go through, which is in our cultures, from from where we're from, this concept of giving someone that you know money to start their business is pretty foreign. It's really strange. So when we think about that dynamic and when I think about what we went through in the first year of Eight Sleep, I really wonder how other people do it, how I would have done it if I was not partner up with my co-founders who had friends who were okay giving them those first $20,000, $30,000 checks. And I think that is where most of us uh, get stuck is if you don't have friends who have money, family who has money, even if it's a small amount each each individual check, how you get started is really, really tough. Once that happens and you kind of get that first maybe $100,000, maybe you get to the first million dollars, it becomes a little bit easier to continue to get money from similar people. But then you get to the next level of how do you unlock institutional money, which is completely different. How do you get to the seed stage investors with the VCs? How do you get to then the next stage of Series A, how to Series B, growth stage? Just it keeps getting harder in a sense where your business needs to be proven for anyone to give you money. But it gets easier from the perspective of how you've been validated at every previous step. It's kind of you're graduating from middle school and junior high, right? But you just need to prove yourself over and over to continue to get that funding. And for us now, we're at that point where, you know, we need to think about the next one. It's like, what are the next investors going to be looking at? What are the numbers that we need to prove? What is the business like right now and how are we going to tell that story? It's a never-ending process, hopefully one day where you go public and then your story needs to be different and you need to be accountable to different types of, of shareholders. But it's always the same dynamic. So the first step or the first round was just doing an angel round with friends and family. Yes. And that was that was back in the early days. In that 20, was back in 2014. 2014. So then how much did you raise that first round with friends and family? I think before we launched, we had a little under a million dollars. So that was probably raised in eight to nine months. 
And what did you do with that money? And when did you realize that, okay, now we need more? Because you're building a product that is expensive to build. It's not like you have a service-based business. You're building technology and an expensive product. So that was – you needed money to be able to – great product yeah that was definitely a challenge that's why when we say oh we raised a million dollars before launch people think it's a lot of money (laughs) it was nothing for what we needed so we knew we needed capital because it's a capital intensive business like you're mentioning we need to build the hardware we had to hire a team to develop it first which it's a lot of investment in r&d then we had to prototype it then we have to to build it so what we decided is we're going to raise this much money as possible early on to get ourselves started. But also we need to put the product out there through crowdfunding. And this back in 2015, when we launched in crowdfunding, it was a pretty hot way to put a product out there to get that backing. What platform did you use? Indiegogo. Okay. And so that was really beneficial because you not only test if the market is actually interested in your product, but also from a cash flow perspective of getting that money in and being able to then deploy to build what people pre-ordered. And so that's how we funded that first kind of batch of of units. We continued to raise money after Indiegogo. So once we had that success, we sold over $1.2 million in pre-orders over the course of 60 days. So with that traction, we were able to then go out to seed stage investors and try to get some money in. Now, for us, something that really changed the course of our fundraising was that after the success of Indiegogo, we were admitted into Stanford's accelerator program called StartX. None of us had been through Stanford University, and usually they only accept companies uh, founded by alumni, but they make rare exceptions, and we were one of them. And we got in, and that was very helpful because it gave us a certain validation in front of investors that probably did not understand most of our resumes, where we came from, where we went to school. None of us had experience with a hardware company. And so that first stamp was pretty helpful. And as we continued conversations with investors, it opened new doors. But then the biggest game changer for us in the early days came when we went through Y Combinator. So we had been rejected by Y Combinator two times. And the third time we got accepted, we had already some proven traction thanks to the Indiegogo campaign. And through the program in YC for three months, we knew that we had to deliver certain milestones in terms of product and that we would get to demo day in a really strong position if we had key advancements in product, the traction of our Indiegogo campaign, and that would unlock the next level of funding. So we were able to raise around the days of of Demo Day back in August 2015, a $6 million seed round. And so with that, then we had, you know, kind of that first big influx of capital to go to China, start the manufacturing process. And from there, it's been nonstop every single year, (laughs) shipping product, shipping a new product, growing the team, growing sales, raising money. It's a cycle over and over. Never ends. Yes. Do you have any tips to share for when you're actually pitching in front of an investor, whether it's putting together a deck or how to handle tough questions? So I'm very thankful that I'm not the person doing the fundraising. Mateo, who's our CEO, does. I come to some of the meetings. I do work on the deck a lot. Um, So a few things that I've seen him go through, which obviously being that he's my husband, it's interesting to see the emotional ups and downs that he goes through and how the conversations unfold. I'd say that you need to start from a very clear story. Investors are people. They're not making investments out of algorithms or not machines. They're just as emotional as a customer would be 
to, you know, how they respond to advertising. So when you're pitching, you need to think of the story that you're telling and how do you simplify your story? How do you distill it into just the, the core of the reason why they should invest? It needs to be simple. You can't tell them too many things. If it's complicated, they're going to tune out very quickly. That for us has been a challenge. It was a challenge, I think, particularly in the early days because our product, if you really try to distill it, is quite complicated. We're building a new category. The technology is complex. The possibilities of what the technology could do are infinite. The potentials for business models and for distribution are many. And so in the early days, when you're trying to you think you're selling a dream, you're trying to sell it all. And you're trying to tell the investor, look at all of these things that we could do. Look at all of these places where we could sell our product. Look at all of these partnerships. You know, you would think that that is good. You would think, well, we have a lot of potential. There's a lot of things on the table. It's actually quite detrimental because it almost feels like you don't know where you're really going. Mm. There's, you don't have clarity. You don't have focus. And the best investors are looking for that clarity and focus. And it doesn't mean that the story that you present they will always agree with, but they prefer that you show that there's a clarity of thinking and that you have a clear direction and that you know where you should be going. And then they know that if that's not right and they have a different opinion, they can voice that and that you can have a conversation about it. But if you go there as an entrepreneur and you're showing all these things and talking about all these other things and means you're just confused, imagine the moment they give you money, you're not going to know what to do with that money. Yeah. Do you feel, you know, obviously raising $65 million is a lot of money and yeah. you have a lot of responsibility when you've raised that much money. Do you feel additional pressure because you've gone that route? Yeah, definitely. I always tell entrepreneurs when they ask about raising money, my first question is, do you need the money? If you don't need it, don't race it. Yeah. There's no reason why you should put yourself in that position. Um, it's just like you would think getting a loan from a bank. If you don't need it, why are you going to go get the loan? Yeah. It's the same thing. It's, there's nothing fancy about having investors and raising capital. It's just, you know, you're basically admitting that your business needs the funding in order to survive. That's the way we should really think about it. And yes, for us, we feel immense responsibility. We feel lucky to work with the investors that we have. We really are lucky to have amazing investors on board um, and that we are learning every day from them and that they give us a chance to learn from them as well and that they're also learning from what we're doing, right? Is that sort of exchange? But there is a big level of responsibility that you have. You have a board that you report to and you not only have to think about those investors, but all the people that gave them money as well, right? It's definitely a humbling experience and it makes you operate your business um, with that sense of accountability mm -hmm. that is really important. Um, we know how many companies raise a lot of money and they don't behave in, in that way, in that responsible way with the funding. And that's just not the way that it should be done. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, oh, it can keep you up at night, but not if you're sleeping in your bed, yeah. you'll still get a good night's <laughs> sleep, right? Up next a glimpse into Eight Sleep's signature product, and what's ahead in innovation and marketing. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneurs. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurspodcast.com. A common theme from all of the guests we've interviewed on our podcast so far is that they've all relied on support from other women through groups. So we decided to start an Entreprenista Facebook group. 
head on over to Facebook and search Entrepreneistas. We really wanted to create a community for Entrepreneistas to connect, share ideas, help each other solve problems, and learn from all of our collective experiences. If you join the group, it's really a safe space to talk about being an entrepreneur, sharing your wins, asking for help when needed, and we can't wait to meet you so we can learn and grow together. So we haven't talked much about the products that you offer now, and I'm sure they've evolved from the early days, but what products are you selling now? Our signature product is called the Pod. So the Pod is a smart mattress. It looks just like a regular mattress when you see it from the outside, but what it has is actually embedded technology that helps you fall asleep deeper and stay asleep. So what that means is the the way we're able to get to that result is by using temperature regulation to, if you think about it that this way, hack your sleep. So we use temperature to get you to fall asleep faster. We regulate the temperature throughout the night to keep you asleep more comfortably, which means you're going to toss and turn less. You're not going to wake up in the middle of the night. And we use temperature as well to wake you up in a way that is almost from the inside out. It's more natural. You wake up more refreshed. So it sounds pretty interesting. And um, what it's really doing, it's using science and what science has proven to work in terms of temperature and what your body is doing in regards to temperature while you're sleeping and just leveraging all of that knowledge and doing it through the mattress itself. So I won't have to wake up sweating at night because I feel like... Never, never sweating, <laughs> never life. cold. That's the exact idea of it. So we know that temperature is the number one problem for sleep. If you're not comfortable in terms of temperature, you're not going to be in a good deep sleep. People think that it's, uh, oh, maybe if I don't sweat, I don't have problems with temperature. If I don't feel cold, I don't have problems with temperature. We all do. It's normal. What is the ideal temperature to be There's not one ideal temperature. So there's a lot of articles in the press and commentary around you should be in a bedroom 68 degrees. The reality is temperature for sleep and for anything really is really complex. There is a temperature of the air. There is the humidity in the room. There is a radiation that you're getting from the sunlight, from the outside and the thickness of your windows and the distance from it to your bed. There's a lot of factors that come into play and that affect how you are going to perceive temperature differently from me or from anyone else. If you share a bed, you probably notice that there's a difference of preference and temperature yes. between one partner and, and, and the other partner. It's it's normal. And so what science would show you if you look at the research of what's happening with our bodies during the whole day is that our core body temperature and as a consequence, our skin temperature is changing throughout the day. And it goes through a very clear curve that is a key mechanism of our metabolism to regulate when we should be in an alert state or when we can be in like a relaxed state. And so that's why when you go to sleep, there is a big change in the temperature from your core, which then reflects in the temperature of your skin, which reflects in how you're perceiving the temperature from the outside. So if we take that and distill it into what probably most of us experience is when you first go to bed, usually you want your bed to be, for most people, just slightly warmer because it helps you relax, yeah. which is why most of us like to kind of cuddle in the early minutes of the night, or you get your blanket. But very quickly, as you fall into the first deep sleep stage, you're going to start feeling hot. Yeah. And that's when you remove the blankets. 
Then throughout the night, there is this fluctuation as you go through the different cycles. Every 90 minutes, you go through a new cycle of sleep. And in the early morning, most of us feel cold. Around 3 to 4 a.m., you're going to feel cold and you grab the blankets again. If you ever wake up around that time, 4 or 5 a.m. to grab like an early flight, it's very common that you feel like you're shivering, you're very cold, you don't understand why. It's normal. It's what's happening with your metabolism, with your circadian cycle. Your body is just dissipating so you know much heat and you're going to feel that way. There's nothing you can really do about it. So what we do with the mattress is like we're creating the perfect environment to balance what your body is going through so that you stay more at a stable temperature. So when you feel hot, we're going to cool down the bed. When you're feel, feeling cold, we're going to warm it up. That's And so, so then it's this perfect microclimate. And what other products do you offer besides the mattress? So the signature product is the pod. The that's pod. really at the center of the experience. It comes with a digital experience. And that digital side has all the sleep data that we gather. So you get your sleep reports, you get your insights, you get the recommendations on how you should adjust your sleep. And you get content as well. So we have all the tools. We have meditation, breathing exercises, guided expert videos for stretching, for yoga in the morning. Everything is in your eight sleep app. Other products are all of our accessories or all our sleep essentials, anything from the bedding that you need, a pillow that we actually launched yesterday that is a ventilated carbon-infused pillow that is really, really comfortable. You have supplements that we've developed in partnership with other brands. So if you go to 8sleep.com, what you get is everything you need for your sleep, from the most advanced mattress in the market to the digital experience that will guide you to build the best habits to all of the different accessories that you may want to complement that with. And you've been focused on marketing since day one. How has your marketing plan evolved since you've grown the business and added on new product lines? And how do you find your customers? We sell directly to consumer mostly. And so the challenge is breaking through the noise, I think, for any brand. There are so many brands trying to speak to audiences online. So the way that the marketing plan has changed is obviously testing new channels, trying to go beyond just speaking to our customers through social media to try other things like television, radio, podcast advertising. So we have a pretty diversified media mix. But one of the things that we have learned in order to break through the noise successfully is that in the end, as a startup, you only have so much marketing budget. And you can't really compete with the Fortune 500 companies that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars every quarter to reach your same audience. So the best thing that you can do is to stay very focused on one audience at the beginning, to try to really think about that process of community building, to identify who are the people that most benefit from your product, who are the advocates, how are they talking about your product, and then how do you reach more people like them and start building this movement and putting the flywheel in motion so that your marketing dollars, when you do invest in advertising, go a longer way. What is the price point on the pod? The average order on our side is around $2,700. So it's definitely not the cheapest mattress in the market. And that's why for us, it's important to talk about the value, the differentiators, and to reach the people who already understand the importance of sleep and see in the pod the solution and the tool that they've been looking for that doesn't really exist elsewhere in the market. So when you first launched this product, and this is, you said, a $2,700 product, and no one had really used this product before. How did you get your first customers to trust you and spend that type of money with you? We started the process of launching the pod 
way before we launched it. So we put it in the market in February of last year. So it's been around a year now. And what we did is that we we knew that we were going to face this issue of no one has tried it. There's no reviews. How do we build the legitimacy very early on so we don't have to wait for that to build up? Um, so we seeded product to influencers, reviewers, we had journalists try it. And one of the challenges actually was that we did not have enough units early on to give out. And so what we decided is we partnered with the Standard Hotel in New York City and we grabbed a room and we created the Sleep Fitness Day. And we hosted journalists from different publications and influencers to come to the room and try the pod. And around that experience of sleeping on the pod for a night, we created the whole relaxation day, everything from a fitness class to healthy meals to a massage in the room. So we wanted to give them that sense of how do you build a day for recovery and then end it with sleeping on the pod. And that was a very successful program. And that is something that when you think about launching your product is very important you consider is how are you letting people experience it? And if you don't have enough product to give out or to gift to everyone, just build a different way, create an event, host them at your office. We also did a lot of those in in that time of the year when we didn't have enough product. We did have one in our office. So we hosted their interviews and conversations with journalists so that they could try it and write an article so that the day that we launched, we could have some press that said, I saw it and here's what it is. And that was pretty successful. So that's something that we implement for every single one of our product launches. Oh, that's so exciting. So what is next for your company? What else do you have coming up? We're working on a new product. So that will launch in a few months. And we're very excited about that. We've been working for the last 12 months on on launching new generation of hardware and sensors and just everything is an upgrade for us every 12 to 18 months. And so it's it's a labor of love for a startup our size to be able to move so fast and release new generation of products at that speed. On the digital side, we're always releasing new features. So I was mentioning the, the meditation tools earlier is something that we just launched today on the Apple Store. So every couple of weeks, there's something else that we're introducing. And all of our members that buy our products, no matter if you bought it a year ago or two days ago, you get these updates, which is what's fantastic. It's like your sleep experience is only getting better with time as we work on new features. You just get them in your app and you're uncovering all these other tools that you can use for your sleep. On the marketing side, we've been working on a lot of really interesting campaigns. So we're launching a big advertising campaign next week with an athlete um, that we're really excited about. And we're just finding more creative ways to tell our story and to talk not just about the product, but about our mission. Our mission is really really to help people get sleep fit. Mm. And so we're always finding a way to talk about sleep fitness. What does it mean? How do you achieve it? Why is it important to put a face to that sleep fitness movement to show that there are other people, whether they are CEOs or they are parents or they are athletes that are embracing sleep fitness into their lives and how they're doing it and what results they're seeing. So the storytelling has become a more important aspect of our marketing plan. And we're going to be doing a lot of that this year. That's so exciting. When you do a campaign or a partnership with an athlete, how do you do you have any advice on how to structure a deal like that, especially for brands who are just starting out and thinking about like partnering with an influencer or partnering with a celebrity? How do you structure those deals? So early on for us, it was about just identifying the organic opportunities. The challenge that we had maybe for the first 
four years of the company is that we were pretty skeptical about all of the investing in any of the marketing channels that were hard to measure. Mm-hmm. And influencers is certainly one of those. If you want to make it easy to measure, you're going to end up with something that is going to put off the following because it's going to be kind of very, you know, swipe here, use this code. It's very salesy and people don't like that. You need to build a narrative. You need to build a story with their audience, which means it's going to be harder to quantify. So we stayed away from it. But then what started happening is that slowly as we, especially as we unveiled the pod and we had this new positioning of the brand and we defined the term of sleep fitness, we started receiving a lot of inbound from athletes and celebrities that wanted to try our product. So what we decided is to do first an exchange. We said, well, we're not willing to pay anyone right now because we are not sure how to measure the impact of this. We're going to gift them a pod and just ask them to share if they like it, something on social media. There was no no contract, nothing. Just, you know, we're going to send 20 of them to 20 people that asked us and that we vetted and that we think they're a good fit. And we just are going to request that if they do like it, um, they share something. And that if they share something on social, we can use that post mm-hmm. and we can put it on our website. They were okay. We would send the pod and then you would start seeing these posts come through. And that became a pretty interesting moment because what we realized is that we didn't have to pay as money as most people think. And that when there is a good alignment of the influencer or the athlete or the celebrity you're working with, and there is a genuine interest in using your product, they're going to be okay with sharing their own experience with their audience. It's, it's not always going to be an exchange of money for them. And so that is how we did for the first maybe six to eight months. Once we had built this base of particularly in majority our athletes that had posted about the pod and we were using it on our website and it created a very good impression of who we were for, a very clear alignment, it's when we started looking at what we could do next. And from there, what we decided is rather than just pay someone to post, we are going to build content and hire athletes or celebrities to be the personalities in our content. Mm -hmm. So instead of hiring a model, we're going to put a fitness instructor with 20,000 followers as the model of our photography, right? And so these different integrations are really good opportunities to work with influencers without having to just pay them for a post. And we found that to be very successful as well. So for 2020, we're taking that next level, which is an actual endorsement deal. So it was an entire process of looking back at what worked last year and identifying what are the right sports, who's the right person. And the collaboration that we're announcing is coming from a, a relationship that we've built, not from last year, but from three years ago with an athlete that has been using our products before the pod even existed, that was you know, generally interested in what we're doing as a brand. And we think that's the best way to go about it. Because if you're just doing it as an exchange, if the influencer is just there for the money, it's really going to show that way to the audience. And it's not what really resonates with people nowadays. For sure. It's so important that these relationships with influencers and brands are organic and authentic. And even if you are paying them, that they really do love your product because that shows through. And if they can share these real authentic stories, that's, of course, going to help drive sales. So really, really great advice. Is there a mantra or quote that you live your life by? 
Oh my God. I was thinking, I don't know why I was thinking about this yesterday, but I couldn't stop thinking about Dory from Finding Nemo. Yeah. And I was thinking about just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Yeah. And I realized yesterday that that should probably be my life mantra yes. <laughs> because particularly as an entrepreneur, you need to be so resilient and things are always happening. Mm -hmm. And every single day, something is going wrong that if you can just remind yourself to keep swimming and keep going, you're going to reach your destination eventually. And even if you don't get to where you wanted to go, you are going to experience so many wonderful things along the way yeah. that it's all worth it. And that to me is kind of what the Just Keep Swimming is about. And that's why the character of Dory is so interesting is that it's not just, she doesn't even care where she's going. Yeah, she doesn't she's even know. Just, she's having fun, right? And and I think that's something yeah. we forget about. You need to enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. You can't be in it. You, you can't start a company for the outcome. Because if you're just in it for that, going to be miserable. It's going to take such a long time that you need to enjoy it every single day. Oh, yes. I love that. And what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? What does it mean to me to be an entrepreneurista? I'd say it's about doing what you love. You know, it. I consider being an entrepreneurista a blessing and a great opportunity that not everyone gets. I get to do what I love every day and no one is forcing me to do this. I find my own motivation and it's because I really enjoy it. And that's what I find in a lot of other people that I meet that are in their own journey is this kind of twinkle in their eye and the satisfaction for what they're doing uh, that makes it all worth it. There's nothing better than waking up each day excited to get to go to your office and do something that you're passionate about and that you love. And I think yeah. you've just shared some incredible advice and tips. And thank you so much for sharing your journey. I can't wait to continue to watch you grow and watch your business evolve. And I'm going to have to go on your website. And I think I need to order your products now, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, where thank can everyone, you. Thank you so much. Yes. Where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, buy products for On 8 Sleep? Yeah. So we're 8sleep.com. Um, that's where you can find all of our products at 8 Sleep for all of our accounts. I'm usually the one retweeting everything that we post on our 8 Sleep. <laughs> so you can find me with Alexandra Zatarain, usually with, with 8 Sleep or at A Zatarain and any iteration of that. But easy to find on 8 sleep account as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Thanks for listening. 